0: Welcome to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Each episode,
1: LRB Health's Keith Figlioli will talk to the healthcare insiders who are helping to fundamentally transform our healthcare industry.
2: Hey everybody, this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders, or welcome back if you're a repeat listener, I'm sure you are. I'm here once again with our hero and host, Keith Figlioli, of LRV Health, the Ultimate Healthcare Insider. Keith, how are you today?
0: I am terrific. And I think we should be saying happy holidays.
2: Should we be saying happy holidays? We should. We should be saying happy holidays.
0: <laughs> to, uh, not only you and I, but we should be saying it to all the all the listeners.
2: Happy holidays to all our listeners. You never know if you want to date these podcasts because they live on forever, Keith. They, they're they're like the encyclopedias of the future.
0: But it's time, Sam, for December, so we're gonna go with it.
2: <laughs> and it's just a nice thing to do, right? Right. Happy holidays everybody. As our gift to you, we have a great interview with uh, Sukanya Sodhalin. She is Senior Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Yay. This is the final installment of your your new normal series, correct?
0: Yes, and we have a hometown favorite. So, Yay. She's native that heads up strategy among many other things for Blue Cross Blue Shield Mass here in Massachusetts. And to your point, we did four heads of strategy, two at health systems and two at health plans, or somewhat health plans, some more like pay viters, which we'll talk about. And trying to understand sort of what it's like to operate in the environment as things have kind of changed to this new normal, you know, kind of post COVID, if you will.
2: What are some of the, the takeaways? This is a kind of a unique position for her. She has been sort of on the outside of the consulting side for a long time. Is this her first time? back to a sizable company in a while?
0: Yeah, Tom, I think it might actually be uh, her first kind of full-time role in an operating company, Blue Cross Blue Shield Mass, over the last five years. And previous to that, I think she was at Oliver Wyman for about 17 years. Uh, And folks may remember that uh, Mercer Management Consulting actually acquired Oliver Wyman and then renamed that group Oliver Wyman on a go-forward basis. And she was there for about 17 years prior to Blue Cross Blue Shield Mass. So we started the whole thing, which I think is always an interesting question of how do you keep this outside perspective from multiple vantage points when you have a very senior executive role like this at one company, when you're used to working consultative assignments with many clients. So you're, as she says, you're in the market all the time. And it was a really interesting back and forth about you know, how she thinks about the role and how and, and some of the things that she does, which I'm not going to reveal them. People have to listen to keep that outside perspective in her current role, which is critically important to the role because she one of her key components is obviously heading up strategy in the direction of of where the plan should go.
2: Yeah, that would guess that would be sort of the point of the position not to look at how things have always gone in inside, but rather reflect what's going on outside and react to that.
0: Yeah. And shame on me because it took me four episodes to ask that question. But I put that <laughs> question to every head of strategy, because I think it's a critical question, whether you're in consulting or you weren't in consulting, which is when you're in these roles, how do you keep the market view? And we talked a lot about the push and pull of day-to-day operations and then bringing innovation in and bringing new ideas in based on what the market is doing and not only partnering with different business unit leaders to do that and the strategy teams but also having empathy on both sides which i thought was an interesting discussion overall which you know you wouldn't think much about that term when you're trying to think how do you bring market views into sort of an ongoing operation
2: and given this this is your fourth piece of the new normal series do you have any sort of broader takeaways we're going to save that for the next podcast from the, the, the four individual interviews?
0: We're changing gears big time in the new year. I know. So we're, <laughs> we're going to go in a couple of different directions early in the beginning of the year. So I, you know, my takeaway overall on these four is what I continue to think, which is everybody's in a little bit of a different place. I used to call this in the beginning of this series, kind of a tale of two cities, at least on the health system side. Actually, it's a tale of many cities across health systems and payers because a lot of these entities are put together very differently. You know, When we talk about a regional health system like Ohio Health, there's different things that Michael and that team are experiencing, and they've got a lot of positive tailwinds in terms of the way their payer mix works in that particular market. If we think about common spirit, Sherry's got a huge footprint to try to figure out and try to standardize where it needs to be standardized because it is a very national health system as they brought those entities together over the years, and she's taken on that role. And then you look at Humana and what Vishal's got, they're very different animal. Most people just think of them as an insurer, but at the core of that, really is what I, you know, I've called in a couple of these episodes a true pay vider where they have a lot of clinical delivery for that senior market, but they also take risk, financial risk on that. And then you have what Sakanya has at Blue Cross Mass, you know, they're pretty pure play insurer. And now they have partnerships on clinical delivery and some other things like that, but they don't own clinical delivery outright as she discusses that may be part of some of the future strategies some of the regional blues but today that's not really usually front and center with the exception of a couple that she mentions like high and a couple of others but that's a different playbook and they're all experiencing different financial constraints as the waves of this new normal take place where in the early part coming out of COVID and the new normal a lot of the health systems you know continue to be, but but really we're under financial distress. That is normalizing a bit. Now, it's still not a huge margin, but it's normalizing a bit for a lot of providers across this country, not all. And then on the health system side, they're starting to feel the pressure now. When we came out of COVID, because the utilization wasn't as high, they were had a ton of profits based on how things were set up and how utilization was happening across the country. Now, utilization is kind of coming back a little stronger, and health systems are demanding different kind of rate structures based on the pressures that they have with inflation. And so they have different pressures now. And I talk a little bit about health plans kind of planning over a three-year arc. A lot of health systems plan over a one-year arc, like a typical strategic planning process. And how do you balance those two things as, as you kind of manage sort of these different financial patterns that are in the market for each one of the constituents?
2: All right. Well, I encourage anyone who's missed a previous episode of the new normal series to go back and, and revisit that because I think there is, as you laid out quite well, just a, a thread of ongoing different approaches to different circumstances within healthcare. And this is a, certainly a great way to end it. Let's get into your interview with Sukanya Sotolin, Senior Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. And happy holidays, Gaith
0: Happy holidays, Tom, and everybody else. Should be a fun one. (laughs) Well, welcome back to the Healthcare is Hard podcast. We are finishing up, which has been a fun series, part four of what we're calling Operating in the New Normal. We are ecstatic to have Sokanya Soderlin, who is the Senior Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Sokanya, very nice uh, to meet you and, and have you on the podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to have a conversation with you.
0: So this, this has been a fun one. We've, we've now, you're gonna be our fourth head of strategy over the last four months. We've had uh, been lucky enough to have a very large single state IDN head of strategy at a, at a healthcare system. And then we had uh, Sherry Shapiro, who's the uh, head of strategy at Common Spirit, a very national footprint from health system. Then we had Vishal from Humana, a very national footprint with head of strategy. And now we have you, as the head of strategy at a dominant, mostly Massachusetts-based sort of regional blue. So we're really excited about sort of finishing it up with you and getting your perspective. We'd love to start with sort of just maybe a little background on yourself and how you got into, as I always say, the lovely, crazy world of healthcare.
1: Sure. Happy to. I actually live in the hometown I grew up in, which is Winchester, Mass, and was not particularly interested in healthcare growing up, but being a good Indian daughter, I did explore the uh, idea of going to medical school and did a a summer internship with a professor in with a grant from the National Institutes of Health dissecting mice hearts and determined after that, that was enough for me. And so initially had, had no interest in going into medical school or the medical school route. And in undergrad, I went to Harvard. I studied sociology and economics. In so doing, One of the projects that I worked on with a professor at the Harvard Business School, Rosebeth Moss Cantor, was on the power of public-private partnerships. And as she had me interviewing leaders in the city of Denver, and I I was interviewing CEOs of small businesses, et cetera, in Denver, I recognized that the for-profit sector had a lot to offer to the nonprofit sector, which is where a lot of my interest had been to, to date at that point. And so I thought, gosh, there's more I need to learn about in business. And so, of course, I ended up ultimately going into consulting, uh, whereas at Mercer Management Consulting, then rebranded and renamed as Oliver Wyman, and initially did anything and everything under the sun, save for healthcare, for the first five years. And then five years in, there was a small group of partners who were founding a health and life sciences practice, and I joined them. So it was just a handful of us. It's now the highest growth, highest margin practice of their business, but then it was just a few of us, and I joined really for two reasons. One, healthcare seemed like a really interesting arena where I could take my interest in social impact and bring it towards solving tricky, challenging problems, and two, because the partners who had founded the group were folks I really respected and and culture is important to me. So that began my sort of initial onset into healthcare-related activity. And then in tandem, my husband, whom I also met in in college, freshman year, he is a physician. So he was doing his residency and fellowship, et cetera. And so I would get this lens of the frontline clinician view, which I still get, which is quite grounding. And I found it fascinating. So that's really what got me into healthcare in the first place.
0: So we didn't even know this before we got on. I didn't know this, but- I live in Winchester. So oh, I get the same experience. <laughs> My family's growing up there too. So so funny. We've had a couple of prep calls and chats and never there never cre- so,
1: Maybe I'll see you in the cells. We are we're in there every day walking our dog.
0: I'm sure we'll bump into each other at Starbucks when it reopens or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Terrific. Exactly. Well, let's move on from our, our personal location and and talk. I mean, you were at Oliver Wyman and Mercery for that a long time.
1: Yes, indeed.
0: So many, I think it was 17 years. Is that right? Mm -hmm.
1: Yes. I joined in 2000, left in
0: 2018. So a ton of experience and a ton of clients and a ton of exposure broadly. And and I started in consulting as well. And the thing I always say is like, I kind of tell most young people to start consulting. I think when I try to talk to them about career advice is because you see so much. And you experience so much from so many different lenses. And I've said on many previous podcasts, to your point, which is so pointed and so dead on in my mind, you know, in healthcare, this idea of a public-private partnership or the crossover of public and private good is so important to have that type of lens. And in consulting and over those years, you probably had those views from so many different client engagements. And then in your... Current role at Blue Cross Blue Shield Mass, you have one view, you still see a lot, but you have one kind of, you know, mandate. I think about this often in my career over the years, but I'm curious, and I haven't asked this question before, you know, how do you think about that? Like, how do you think about keeping the broad view or the outside perspective when you're sitting at the head of strategy at Blue Cross Blue Shield Mass, given some of your past experience and some of the things that you you experienced before?
1: Great question. And that was actually something I was worried about when I made the transition because I, I was worried I would, I would get stale, you know, it'd be hard to stay fresh because I was in the market all the time <laughs> prior to that. And it's been refreshing to see that it actually has not been so much of a challenge to, to keep current. It's really a function of a handful of things. I mean, first and foremost, it's talking to a lot of folks. And so everyone in my network, for the most part, whom I've known now for decades, is in healthcare typically and so it's a question of what are you seeing what are you seeing and exchanging notes so i mean that's probably the best way of getting the inside scoop and story on what's going on i'm really grateful to folks for that then there's finding focused forums different conferences and for example i'm part of the health evolution forum and co-chairing with a few other folks a series on value-based care and specialized populations and so that's, you know, really focused to dialogue that we'll have and bring in different speakers, et cetera. So that's very helpful. I'm part of another forum, which is an industry agnostic called Outthinker that Kyan Krippendorf leads. And he brings in different academics and leaders who publish books. It's almost like a, a book group to share key findings. And, and that's really enriching. Uh, we have a great competitive intelligence function internally, small but mighty team, that's helpful, lots of reading, et cetera. But I will say to the point that you raised up front, I am forever indebted to my experience in consulting because the brain is a human prediction machine and you just see so much across so many different sectors that it's very easy and convenient to be able to sort of connect the dots across different situations back to things that you've seen before.
0: And since this is the fourth interview with the head of strategy, I mean, is that what you're describing, I assume you believe it's kind of an imperative in that role where, yeah, you know,
1: absolutely. you don't
0: have to keep an outsider mindset because you're probably the most outsider mindset, outside in kind of thinker at the organization.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. No, the, the outside in perspective is crucial. And, you know, in my purview, I also have innovation, enterprise data analytics, business process improvement, business planning, et cetera. And So innovation, it's really also about what's really coming around the bend and the enterprise data and analytics has the AI component. So there are so many different vectors that I need to try to keep tabs on. And then you need it to be grounded, though, in the reality of where the business is. And the truth of the matter is, if I'm not mired in the specifics of the operations I could talk about anything I want to talk about, but it's not going to go anywhere and no one's going to get on board. And so it's really having a hybrid approach of both the outside in, grounded in the rea- the practical realities of the inside out.
0: Yeah. And, and quite a difficult thing to balance. You know, we sit in the middle of all that, given what we do with a lot of our comment players, including yourselves. And I always find that it's this push and pull tension of those two vectors of what you just brought up, that the people who are really good at it are the ones that fully appreciate and have empathy for both of those sides. And then the organization culturally has to wrap itself around that.
1: 100%. I love the word you used around empathy. That is critical. Because otherwise, it's very easy to get into the mindset of, well, you just don't get it on both sides, right? Folks who are busy trying to keep the lights on are like, you just don't get it. I have to deal with this today. The you know, house is on fire kind of thing. And then the folks on the outside are like, you just don't get it. You're an ostrich. You've got your head in the sand or you're you're gonna become a dinosaur. And so having that empathy and that trust is really important. And I think what we've found, even for example, in our innovation function, which has been helpful, is instead of leading With a lot of stuff that sounds cool and exciting, but feels disconnected from where the business is, it's really going to the business leaders, understanding what their critical priorities are, partnering shoulder-to-shoulder, arm-in-arm with them, and then finding ways to stretch into what's around the bend, but hardwired to their direct priorities and KPIs.
0: Maybe diving a little deeper into Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Mass., if you step back, and a lot of people obviously locally know it, but we've got a pretty big national audience. A lot of people don't know it. They know the blues, but they don't know specifically. How would you describe Blue Cross Blue Shield Mass today as a business?
1: Well, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, as you referenced earlier, the largest health plan in Massachusetts, close to 3 million members at this point. We are primarily commercially focused, although we're not in Medicaid. We do have a Medicare focus for sure, as many plans do. And so, and that's probably all told, call it 425,000 lives or so in in Medicare. Close to 40% of our members are actually out of state. We are regional and yet we have to operate nationally and we are interdependent collaborators with our sister blues uh, plans on that front. We're the market leader in pretty much every sector, every um, segment that we're in. We have the highest net promoter score, Although others are starting to gain some ground. We've won many awards on our for call resolution figures over the years, et cetera. Because we are primarily a very member-focused, member services-oriented organization, very much steeped in the community. That's, I think, one of the biggest hallmarks, I would say. Having been here now five years, the organization really does focus on what are the needs of the various stakeholders and constituents. And While we have to make tough calls and choices and trade-offs, at the center of every decision, there's a dialogue around what does it mean for members? What does it mean for our providers? What does it mean for our customers, for our brokers, for the state, for the regulators? And that's a bit different from a lot of our for-profit national competitors, where they're really maximizing for shareholder value.
0: Yeah. let's. I mean, since you went there, let's go into that a little bit, and then we'll come back to the tie-in with the association is... When you sort of sit back and think about the bigger title of of the last four episodes, including this one, is kind of this idea of the new normal operating model or environment, not model. And I think you know what we saw was everybody was kind of going up and to the right, and then obviously the wheels came off the bus for a lot of the health systems and our thin margins. Recently, we have seen a lot more layoff notices and other potential dark clouds in certain categories for the payers. So when you think about, someone told me this a long time ago, you can tell me if it's right or not, but they told me that most payers in in actuarial analysis think of their strategic plan in three-year cycles. And so when you think out, whether it's this year or the next or three years, how do you think about the operating kind of environment for you all as what you just described, And then we'll compare and contrast that a little bit to maybe some of the national players.
1: In one word, I'd say it's challenging. So if you think about it and you think about the various forces at play, think about on the supply side with our providers, you reference that the health systems are struggling, many of them. Uh, Many of them are looking for double digit rate increases. Input prices are largely our provider rates. And so that's a challenge. And then if you look at drug costs, those are also escalating at double-digit rates now as it relates to specialty drugs, which are overtaking the prescription drug sphere. And the top three PBMs control 80% of the market, and they have significant control over, over that piece. And they're you know, trying to do what they can there, but that's a challenge. And then on the demand side, our customers are feeling the pinch as it relates to inflation, And the rising cost of healthcare, we're working hard, as are others, to try to mitigate medical cost trend. But it's a lot. It's a big line item for folks. And so they're looking for lower costs and sometimes trend guarantees and things of that sort. They're also looking for best in class, personalized experience and digital assets, which require investments. Right. You look at on the regulatory front, there's been a lot of transformational regulation. Much of which will unleash some greater innovation over time in the industry like interoperability, but much of which also has carries a lot of audit and compliance related requirements. Think of the CAA, et cetera. So you gotta follow all of those mandates, et cetera. It's not an insignificant part of our underlying portfolio of activity. And then you look at the nationals, and because they have invested across the value chain, they're in essence, in my view, and and some others share this, able to cross subsidize the low, no margin medical insurance with other parts of the value chain. And so that's hard to compete with from a cost standpoint, although we do have a rate advantage and that's the bulk of overall cost, but it's still tricky. And then you've got the innovators whom, you know, folks like you all invest in, who can be both wonderful collaborators for us, where we can access some best in class capabilities through them, but also can be Competitors and can disintermediate us, et cetera, and so you put all of those different pieces of the puzzle together, and it's challenging. And then I will say that you've got the underlying severity of the risk profile seems to be escalating a bit, as there's been a snapback in select areas of utilization post COVID, and so you know we're constantly trying to manage those dynamics as well.
0: Yeah, a complex playing field. To your point, and. The double tap for me on the on the blues plans, and we've had a couple of other discussions over the years with leaders of various blues plans around the country, is how do you think about that diversified portfolio look where most of the blues historically have been very pure to their mandate for many, many decades? And there's been some other folks dabbling a little bit into sort of getting into provider, obviously a lot of partnerships, but outright ownership of care delivery and things like that haven't really been part of the playbook historically. Do you think that's going to end up being a necessity in time? I'm not saying just for Blue Cross Mass. I'm just saying what more your Oliver Wyman hat on. You know, when you think about sort of how these regional players that have such incredible footprints and do such great things to the community to your point play over the next number of years, are they going to get forced into that because of what's happening sort of more nationally and some of the diversified players, to your point about subsidizing some of these these costs?
1: Yes. So to your point, t- taking my old Oliver Wyman hat and putting that on, from that standpoint, I would say absolutely. It is hard to really effectuate meaningful change from an affordability standpoint, even a consumer experience standpoint, quality standpoint, without being more intimately involved in care delivery. And so I think what we're seeing is, various plans, trying to find ways in which they can more intimately get involved in care delivery, whether it's outright ownership, which can be prohibitive in some places like here in Massachusetts, where fewer than 10% of the physicians are not employed or affiliated by one of the major systems. And the top seven systems control 80% of the network spend, etc. But in many markets, that's an area of focus. And or partnerships and creative ways of partnering with provider systems, either large incumbent systems and or new innovative alternative models that are coming in.
0: Any examples of that where you think of, you know, again, it could be in with you all or it could be elsewhere where you think there's really creative partnership examples in the marketplace that are starting to emerge overall?
1: Well, I would say that one example, it's not a new example, but an example of a blues plan that made a pretty heavy play into care delivery is Highmark. And that happened for a variety of reasons, whatever it was a decade ago or so, but you'll find that their underlying strategy now is very much intertwined with care delivery in a really substantive way. And I I call that one out because nearly everyone has a series of pilots and partnerships underway. And it's an open question as to what's really going to fully scale, et cetera, but that's a meaningful one from a size and a scale standpoint in the Pittsburgh market. And they're and I don't want to go into the depths of their strategy. Obviously, I'm not qualified to speak to that, but from what I understand, and they're one of our fellow partners in EVORX, which is an entity we created together with four other blues plans on the prescription drug side. Um, from what I understand from them, their strategy is really looking at how they can transform what the healthcare experience looks like end to end. And care delivery is obviously a big part of that.
0: Yeah, I think it's a great example in a really complicated market.
1: Exactly,
0: yeah. Similar similar to our lovely complicated market here in Boston.
1: In one word, healthcare is complicated, yes.
0: We (laughs) say it's hard around here, you know, but yes. Uh, Maybe touching on that, we can roll a little bit into sort of the association, how you work with other blues as well, tied into this. You you bring up Ivo on the pharmacy side Do you foresee more of that type of activity that starts linking a handful of the blues together because of the nature of the association? And maybe a quick two cents on that in terms of how you work with the association and how maybe some of the other blues comes together that way. And then think about, has that become the nature of some of the way through for you all strategically in time?
1: So I'll say Kim Keck, relatively new CEO of the association, is just doing an awesome job from my perspective in corralling you know, thirty-two some odd blues plans, which is no small feat, and aligning us in key areas of focus. You know, each market is quite different. Each plan is quite different. There are various different dynamics, so it is complicated. But I will say that examples of the work that she and others are are leading in bringing the blues together are things like synergy, which is also focused on driving greater efficiency in the pharmacy arena. That took some inspiration from what a handful of us did. Uh, across the Blues, five Blues plans, including Blue Cross Massachusetts did in the formation of AVIORX. So I think that's one example. Blue card modernization is uh, a lot of operational activity that's happening behind the scenes that is quite critical for ensuring that we can work seamlessly across the Blues system and appear as one to our customers and to our providers. And there's a lot of work underway there. In terms of your question of do I see more collaboration happening with select blues plans, absolutely, because I do think there is amongst many blues, not all of them are not-for-profit, but most are, there's this sense that there's much more we can do together given our interdependency to begin with, with home and host plans, et cetera, to preserve not-for-profit healthcare and to serve as a model for what that can look like in a sustainable way in the face of this very complicated and some would argue uneven playing field when you've got the likes of the juggernaut in the industry united throwing off whatever it is, 30 some odd billion dollars of free cash flow a year.
0: Yeah. It's stunning when I keep seeing the free cash flow every quarter on that company. So within that, just to kind of sum it up, like if you think about some of the capital constraints you have and other regional blues have there probably is a like-minded kind of point of view of pooling capital to build some of these shared projects or shared infrastructure to be able to compete that way. And I, you know, I had some of that experience at premier where we brought a lot of health systems together to build shared infrastructure. I assume that's we're probably going to start seeing more and more of that just because of the nature of of what
1: is happening in the market. Yeah. You know, there's always this challenge of what point do you build? At what point do you buy? At what point do you co-design? And bring in other like-minded entities that have best of breed capabilities that are highly competitive across the market that can be co-developed for you versus you trying to build it all fully from scratch yourself. And so I think there's a range of models that will continue to be explored in that way. And the benefit I would say, because people could look at it and be like, well, gosh, you guys have no chance at all Compared to, for example, a lot of the large nationals, et cetera. And I will say it's formidable competition, there's no question. And at the same time, I'll also say there is a benefit of having deep market share. You know, when you've got 40 plus percent panel share for a given provider, that's material. And sort of it's it's a hidden asset, if you will, to to build from and it's helpful for effectuating change. In addition to that, you've got all these various innovators who have excellent capabilities, but are desperate for scale. And so I think you have the makings that's easier said than done to try to co-create and co-develop. But as we all know, whenever you've got any type of partnership, it sounds great, but it's much more complicated in reality than it sounds in, like in theory, where there's a lot around operational control and what you have to give to get to get alignment.
0: Maybe one last question on on formidable competition. Any, any thoughts on the Cigna Humana rumors?
1: We've all been speculating that this will be happening in some form or fashion at some point in time. I don't know that I'll have anything net new to say relative to what everybody's thinking and reading. But on the one hand, I think you can see, one, the imperative for both plans to pursue a merger. Two, you can see the logic of sort of Cigna shedding some MA and Humana having shed, you know, the little bit that they had in commercial to be able to make the case. And then three, I think Lena Khan of the FTC is also like going to be fairly stringent. So I think there's a, I I think some things are going to be harder to get over the line now than they have been previously.
0: The PBM will be an interesting discussion as part of that. Indeed.
1: (laughs) Yes. And I think that's an area the FTC has really been honing in on. Yeah.
0: So it will be interesting. Interesting to see. So, maybe to close up and think about, and maybe putting again your more your strategy consulting hat on. When you pan out, we we've been talking around it, but you know we often bring up the concept of pay payvider and whatever that becomes, whether it's a partnership model, whether it's an ownership model, whatever have you. But you know, if everybody's kind of chasing that long-term goal, to your point about control, trust comes in there. All the different things that we think about. I was joking with you in the preamble about like, I'm changing this question a little bit. I usually ask people this question all the time, but I got influenced about what doesn't change in the next 10 years? And then what does change in your mind tied into all of that?
1: If only I knew and I could prognosticate perfectly. What I will say is sort of human nature is likely to remain as a constant is one a bit of this sense that folks have, you referenced it earlier, that healthcare is a public good, a social good. And that has an important through line, I think, as we deal with public-private dynamics and, frankly, the government, which we haven't talked about as much, but I think they're going to be elevating their role given some of the challenges that folks have. I think another is that, and I heard this from someone else, innovation is about disruption and healthcare is about preservation. And so I think as much as we can point to a variety of areas where there's waste, inequity in the system, it's a Frankenstein-like system where every party for different reasons is trying to reinforce the status quo in some form or fashion, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unwittingly, but at any rate, change is hard. That I can say fairly confidently, I assume will be the case in 10 years. But I do think some things are going to shift. It's always a question of what the timing is. We can't predict all kinds of things that oftentimes are right. It's just a question of the time scale that we're dealing with. I do think we will see a shift in terms of how care is delivered, not just sort of in the home and on the go and so forth. I think we will see that. But I think the relationship that people have with their physician is going to shift over time. McKinsey has done a lot of great research and analysis of the supply, demand, imbalance, balance, et cetera, PCPs, nurse practitioners, et cetera. And then this generation, Gen Z, is different too. All of the women's done analysis of, you know, they trust, to your point on trust, TikTok and their mom more than, you know, they don't even have a relationship with their PCP. And so I think we're going to just see a changing dynamic in terms of how people access healthcare, who's sort of holding the bag, if you will, in coordinating, because we've kind of lost a lot of that quarterback function, people moving more into some alternative care, functional medicine, et cetera, Uh, not everybody, but some probably meaningful segment of the population, 10, 20% of the population. So I do think things are going to shift in terms of what we view in our minds now as healthcare and what it will look like moving forward, including algorithms being able to take on a lot of functions that today we rely on humans for.
0: On that last point, I was writing something up this weekend because we're doing a, a ton of work, like everybody in generative AI. And there's kind of some three imperatives there, one of which is it really works with a lot of unstructured data and distributed environments. We have a ton of waste, at least 30% of the $4 trillion, with a lot of administrative and operational overhead. And we have everybody burned out. Yes. So you put the three of those things together, which is on a slide I created over the weekend, and I was like, "You I know, what?
1: That. yeah. How,
0: how do you not... Lean into this in a way that looks like the question we started with, which is probably over the next ten years, with the right guardrails and the right risk profiles that we all we know have. But I think it's almost like a given in my mind. I wasn't even here two months ago on this thought, but now I'm here where I think it's a because of the inputs to the problem.
1: I wholly agree, and on that last point around burnout. It's burnout at all levels. It's burnout for the physicians, for sure, the nurses, for sure, mid-levels, et cetera. It's burnout as it relates to the folks who are answering the phone and doing scheduling. I mean, when you actually look at some of the rate-limiting factors that exist today, sometimes it even comes down to not having schedulers. I wholly agree. I think we're going to see that play out and manifest in in a much bigger way than we may be conceiving of today.
0: Well, this has been terrific. I know you're very busy, so I appreciate your time. And, and more importantly, I appreciate you being the the last of four here on our heads of strategy, thinking about the kind of new normal topic. And I think you hit it you hit it out of the park. So thank you again.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Keith. This was fun. All
2: right, well, that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. You can find Keith Figlioli on Twitter and on LinkedIn. You can find me there as well. I'm Tom Salemi, editorial director of Device Talks. Join us next time. We'll have another great episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders waiting for you.